Good morning, Great Oaks. How's everybody doing this morning? morning. All right, awesome, awesome. Hey, just by a show of hands, how many in this room have a social media account? Facebook, Instagram, X, something? Okay, all right. Uh, For those that raise your hand, uh, also another question then. uh, On their social media account, how many of you would say you actually know the friends you have on social media? Like, you actually know them? Okay, most of you, but but less. Uh, This week, I was listening to a message by one of my favorite pastors, a guy by the name of Matt Chandler. And Matt was introducing his congregation in this message to a man named James Smith. Now, James is a man who is a social conservative and not a fan of the current presidential administration. He attended Sam Houston State University, uh, where after graduating, went on to marry his wife, Sherry, and they have been married for 32 years. He raised two wonderful kids, Jeremy and Tiffany, And uh, um, James loves the fact that at his old age, he can still mow his lawn on his John Deere riding lawnmower. Uh, But his crown jewel is that he lives for and loves his seven grandkids, even taking his granddaughter recently on a trip to New York City for high tea. Apparently, that's a thing that you can do. So here's the interesting thing, though, about James Smith. Uh, Matt Chandler doesn't actually know him. Chandler and his wife were on a date, and as they were on this date, they asked the question of each other, hey, I wonder what is the most common uh, male name in the United States? And so after doing a little bit of a Google search, James Smith is the most common male name in the United States. Well, a few days later, Chandler is in his office, and he decides, you know what, I'm going to just learn about James Smith. So he goes on Facebook, and he searches for James Smith, and finding a James Smith, after about a 15-minute deep dive into James Smith's social media page, He learns all of this information about James. Now, what's interesting about that is that for so many of us right now, because of the internet, we can know so much about another person, but actually not know another person. We can get a ton of facts and data about who someone is, and yet not know them intimately. You see, to really know someone, you actually have to be able to sit with them face to face to hear their heart, their fears, their hopes. There's a huge difference between knowing about someone and actually really knowing them. And the same can be true for our relationship with God. We can know all kinds of data and facts about who God is, and yet we can still be so far away from really knowing Him. This morning here at Great Oaks, we are starting a brand new message series we're calling I Am. Jesus in his own words. And in this series, we're taking a look uh, through the Gospel of John and the seven I am statements of Jesus. In in this series, we're discovering what Jesus meant when he says that I am bread or light, a gate, a shepherd, the resurrection, the way, and a vine. And this series is not about learning some more facts and data about Jesus. You see, in this series, when Jesus says, I am these things, he's, he's not saying, hey, I just want you to learn some more interesting things about me, like my mom is Mary and my dad is the Heavenly Father, that I have a brother or that I was born in Bethlehem. No, when Jesus says, I am, in these seven statements, he's saying, this is my identity. This is the core of my being. And our hope is that through these next seven weeks, you will move not just about knowing more about Jesus, but really getting to know him intimately. And that as you grow in knowing him more intimately, it will profoundly affect your faith and your life. Now, 
as we get into this, I, I need to set up kind of the entire series here. So, like I said, we're going to be looking at the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, most scholars believe, was written by John, the son of Zebedee. He's one of the original disciples. He's part of the inner circle of Jesus' life, along with Peter and James. And as John records the stories of Jesus, in chapters 1 through 12, John is making the case that Jesus is the one who was prophesied about in the Old Testament. And what John does is he shows Jesus participating in all of these Jewish festivals and rituals. And how as he participates in those festivals, he's the fulfillment of what was promised. But you also need to know a little bit about the people that Jesus is encountering in this gospel. He's encountering the the Jewish people. And the Jewish people, as Jesus is encountering them, are a little bit hungry. In fact, they might actually be a little bit hangry. They've been living under Roman oppression for decades. They are suffering. God has been silent for 300 years. There hasn't been a prophet on the scene who's been speaking for God, and so they're hungry for God to do something. And it's in the midst of their hunger that Jesus shows up, and Jesus declares who he is. So as we get there, if you would, would you turn your Bible to John chapter 6? Now, chapter 6 is 70 verses long, and don't worry, we're not going to read all 70 verses this morning, but my encouragement to you is as you go home that you read the entirety of chapter 6. We're going to kind of jump around a little bit through this message. But the reason I'm turning to chapter 6 is because in chapter 6, Jesus uses the first of the I am statements. And we find the first of the I am statements in verse 35. In verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. He says, I am the bread of life. Now, I'm going to unpack what it means for Jesus to be the bread of life in a little bit. But again, let me give you a little background. As I said, John roots a lot of what's happening in Old Testament festivals. And so in chapter 6, the Israelites are celebrating what's called the Passover. It's the Jewish festival where the Israelites are remembering God's deliverance and their freedom from being slaves in Egypt. And in chapter 6, Jesus performs this miracle and he feeds 5,000 men. And so we know that there's actually more than 5,000 people present present because we've got to consider the women and the children. Now, maybe you don't know about this miracle, but, but it's not like Jesus went to the local Walmart and bought food for everybody. He didn't have it catered in. You know, what happens is there's a a small boy who's got a little lunch with some five loaves and two fish. And Jesus gives thanks to God for these items. And then he instructs his disciples, hey, go and pass this out to all the people. And in verses 12 through 14, we read this. After everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely he's the prophet we have been expecting. So this is great, right? Jesus shows up, he performs a miracle. People are like, oh my gosh, he's the one. He's the prophet, he's the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for. The the people have been hungry, they're hangry, they're they're cranky, right? They've got all this stuff going on and Jesus has arrived and now they're excited. Maybe now their hunger will be satisfied. When I say the word hunger, what do you think about? I mean, if, if you're probably like me, you think about food, right? Like, 
Am I hungry? I want something that's delicious, satisfying. I like a good steak dinner with all the fixings, some mashed potatoes. Like, you know, that's what I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about hunger, right? Like, even now I'm thinking, like, it's almost lunchtime. I'm hungry. I want some food. And that's kind of what Jesus' audience is thinking about as well. They're thinking about food, something to put in their stomachs. We know this because in verse 26, Jesus addresses it. They're hungry for provision is what they're hungry for. He says, I tell you the truth, you want me to be with you. You want to be with me because I fed you. Not because you understood the miraculous signs, but don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Jesus looks at him and says, hey, you're searching for me because I fed you. The people are going, hey, hey, Jesus, you know that bread thing? That, that was amazing. We want some more of that. That's like a well-prepared steak. Can we, can we get some more of that? And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're hungry this way as well. You're looking for Jesus to, to be that provision. You're looking at life and you're like, man, I, life would be better if we just had a little bit more. Maybe if I had a few more dollars in the bank account, if I just had a few more loaves of bread that we can put in the pantry, right, then, then life would be awesome. So the people are hungry for provision. But they're not just hungry for provision, they're also hungry for a political triumph. As I mentioned this is the time where they're feeling oppressed by the Jewish people, or by the uh, Roman people, I'm sorry. And in Romans 6, or John 6.15, it says, When Jesus saw they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. The people are suffering, and they see Jesus, this miracle worker, and they're like, hey, hey, we're going to put Jesus on the throne. The ESV translation states, we're going to come and take him by force. They're going to go and kidnap Jesus and make him their king because if he's the king, then he can get rid of these Roman oppressors. He's their solution for a political victory. And you know what, though, as I think about that? We can be hungry for a political victory as well. See, if, if you lean on the left side of the political aisle here in our country, of course we would take Jesus by force and say, Jesus, of course, has got to be a liberal because he takes care of the poor and the downtrodden. He hung, hangs out with minorities and those that are oppressed. But just if you think I'm picking on the left, we also do it on the right. On the right, nope, Jesus would be a conservative, of course, because he would want to be for national security concerns because he wants to protect people. He would be pro-family. He'd, be, of course, be a fiscal conservative because, of course, we need to be good stewards of the resources God has given to us. And we do the exact same thing. We're hungry for a political triumph and we force Jesus to be these things. But how does Jesus respond to their hunger? For the provision, he tells them, don't be concerned about perishable food. When they want to make him a political triumph and put him on the throne, he runs in the other direction. He flees. The people are coming to Jesus and they're expressing this hunger and each time Jesus doesn't meet the hunger, they're expressing why. While Jesus cares about our earthly hunger, Jesus wants to satisfy in us and in them something much deeper. Because bottom line, the bread of life satisfies our deepest hunger. In John chapter 6, Jesus is telling the people, you know that hunger you have? It only can be satisfied in me. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to use the ancient importance of bread to make his point. I mentioned, again, this is the time of the Passover. Jesus is fed over 5,000 people in a miraculous way. And as he does this, they have a, another miracle in their minds. You see, in the Passover, after they got rescued out of Egypt, God provides for the people. They mention this in the John passage in, in verse 31. 
They say, after all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scripture says Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. The psalmist alludes to this in Psalm 78 where he says, He rained down manna for them to eat. He gave them bread from heaven. If you don't know this story, as the uh, Israelites come out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness, the desert, there's no food. And every morning God shows up and he, on the ground there, there appears this thing called manna. It's like this flaky substance. And the Israelites take that and they turn it into bread. Each and every single day. This happens. God provides. But this miracle was not just about putting food in their stomach. God was up to something more. And we read about that in Deuteronomy 8. He said, yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by the every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So this is the context. The people see Jesus provide food. He, he multiplies bread. They're talking to Jesus about this bread in the desert, and Jesus uses their request to teach, him, teach them about his true nature. He uses the bread to talk about that, that he will satisfy their deepest hunger. And that's where we see in verse 32. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven, gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Do you know what our deepest hunger is? Our deepest hunger is to be fully known and fully loved. Why do we think social media is so popular? Why do we know now about James Smith? Because we want to be known and we want to be loved. And I would argue that all of our desires, all of our earthly wants, all of our desire for provision, for political solutions, for sex, for drugs, for power, for popularity, for success, all of that's at its root is a desire to be known and to be loved. We desire a connection to something that will make us feel whole. All of us in this world have a, a hole that's deep inside of us. And it's a hole of, uh, it's a hole of uh, being fully known and fully loved. And we fill our, our, that, try to fill that hole with all kinds of things. Hungers for things in this world that we think is going to fill that hole. And it never satisfies Tim Keller, pastor who used to pastor in New York, he passed a few years ago, said this, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Because the bread of life satisfies our deepest hunger. As we think about the bread of life, I think there are three things that it informs us about how it satisfies that deepest hunger in us. And the first thing we learn about what it means to be the bread of life is Jesus is saying, I am from heaven. If you look at the passage from verses 22 through 51, there are eight times when Jesus says this bread comes from heaven. Jesus references that God sent him. In verse 46, he says that he is the only one who has ever seen the Father. 
So Jesus is making the claim that he is not just a prophet. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a religious leader. He's saying in clear terms that he has divine origin. He's stating, I am God. I am God with flesh on. And if Jesus is God, there is a huge implication for us. If you look at verses 47 through 50, he says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes has eternal life. Yes, I'm the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. He's saying, because I came from heaven, an eternal place, when you eat this bread that I'm offering, you will never die. There's an eternal reward. Your ancestors who ate manna in the desert, you know where they're at? They're dead. They're in the ground. They're buried. But what I'm offering is everlasting life. But there's another implication for us if Jesus is fully God. If Jesus is fully God, it also means that he knows you. In the Psalms, in Psalm 139, the psalmist writes about God and he says this, O Lord, you've examined my heart and know everything about me. Jesus knows everything about you. Every action, every thought, every fear, every cell in your body. You know, truth be told, we hide things from others. There's parts of us that we keep hidden. When we post on social media, right, here's, here's my picture-perfect family forgetting the fact that five minutes ago we were tearing each other's heads off, right? Like, this is amazing and beautiful because we like to present the good parts of ourselves. But there's parts of us that nobody knows. Thoughts we have, deep desires that we have, that if other people knew those things, we would be utterly alone. And I know I'm not alone in that. But Jesus leaves heaven, leaves paradise to come to this earth fully knowing everything about you, to come and be with you, to be with us. What does that mean to you, that the God of heaven left his throne knowing everything about you to come and be with you so that you're not alone? Second thing we learn about being, Jesus being the bread of life is that Jesus is saying, I'm given, not earned. His love is given, not earned. If you look at verse 44 and 63, he says, For no one came to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me, and at the last day I will raise them up. In verse 63, he says, The Spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very words I've spoken to you are spirit and life, but some of you do not believe me. For Jesus knew from the beginning which ones didn't believe, and he knew who would betray him. And then he said, this is why I said that people can't come to me unless the Father gives them to me. What Jesus is saying in verse 63, right? The Spirit alone grants eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. The past few weeks, we've been in a series here at Great Oaks called Scandalous. As we've been talking about the scandalous grace of God. And now Jesus is standing in front of a group of very religious people. They know their Bibles backwards and forwards. They know all the rules that they're supposed to follow. And Jesus says eternal life is not earned. It's not something that is worked for. It is something that is given by my Father in heaven. It is given by the Holy Spirit. The manna in the desert for the Israelites, right? It wasn't earned. It was given freely each and every morning. Jesus is saying, my love is freely given. You cannot earn what I have to offer. You can only receive it. Listen, true love is not earned. It is only given. 
God does not love you because you're good enough. God does not love you because you do all the right things. God loves you because he loves you, period, end of story. Which leads to the last implication of Jesus being the bread of life and the most profound. He's saying, I'm from heaven and therefore I know you. My love is given, not earned. And now I'm going to prove my love to you because I'm also the sacrifice. Verse 51 says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And this bread which I will offer so the world may live is my flesh. And then the people began arguing with each other about what he meant. How can this man give us his flesh to eat, they asked. So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person at the last day. So what Jesus says here is completely shocking to his audience. If you're familiar with the whole show, Different Strokes, this is like the audience going, what you talking about, Jesus? Like, this is like crazy. (laughs) He's saying, we need to eat your flesh? I mean, what are we, cannibals now? Like, is this like zombie Christianity? What's happening here? For his audience, it's completely shocking. As Jewish followers, they weren't even supposed to touch blood. And now Jesus is saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood but it's the main point of what it means to be the bread of life. He's not talking about physically eating him. What Jesus is referring to is he's talking about his upcoming death on a cross. He's alluding to the fact that a moment's going to come where his flesh is ripped open and his blood will be spilled on the ground. And this happens so that he will be the perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. In Jewish faith and custom, to atone for the sins of individuals and for the community at large would require a sacrifice from pure animals. It required the shedding of innocent blood to satisfy satisfy God's anger towards sin. And Jesus is saying that I will be the once and perfect sacrifice. I'm freely giving myself to die on a cross as an act of love. I'm going to prove my love to you by dying on a cross. God's grace is being poured out for you. God's forgiveness is being offered by my death. And by declaring that he's the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus is making it possible for us, even as we are fully known by God, in all of our mess, all of our junk, everything inside of us that is just not good, He's allowing it for us to experience his full love and to spend eternity with him forever. Jesus is saying, you don't need me to do another miracle. You don't need physical bread. You don't need me to be a political solution. What you need ultimately is me. You need who I am. With me, I will meet your deepest hunger. In me, your desires for the things of this world are going to change because you will be completely satisfied in me. So you might be sitting here today and going, okay, so what? I've heard this message a thousand times. I've been in church for a long time. I get it. Or maybe you're here for the first time and you're like, how does this change my day-to-day living? What do we do with this message? How do we respond to Jesus saying that I'm the bread of life? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because I think as humans, we respond in one of four ways. And we respond in the same ways that we see the crowd responding to Jesus' message that he is the bread of life. The first response we see from the crowd as he teaches that he's the bread of life is that we, they respond with curiosity. At the beginning of the story in verse 24, the people are getting curious about Jesus. They see him do this cool stuff and they want to learn more. They're hungry. 
Now, they're hungry for bread, but I think they're also hungry for something spiritual, hungry for something supernatural, and it leads them to ask questions. Jesus, how, how did you get here? It leads them to go searching for him, and we see that in verse 24. So when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went across to Capernaum to look for him. They're searching for Jesus. They're curious. One of our strategies here at Great Oats is discover Jesus in worship. We want to be a place where people are hungry to discover more about who Jesus is. In fact, we'd say one of the measures, one of the characteristics of being a disciple of Jesus is that we're ready to learn and hungry for the things of God. We want people to discover more. And our hope, my hope, is that if you're here this morning just checking this out, you might continue to be curious about who Jesus is. But if you look at the text for the crowds, uh, for the crowds when Jesus presents who he truly is, they move from curiosity to complaint. In verse 41 and 43, we read, Then the people began to murmur in disagreement because he had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. But Jesus replied, stop complaining about what I said. The people don't like what Jesus says. They don't like the kind of bread he's offering. Hey, you know, Jesus, I know you're offering whole wheat, but I'm kind of more of a rye fan. I'd like some of the rye, please. Jesus isn't giving them what they want. And so they begin to complain. And I think sometimes for us, too, as we encounter the real Jesus, sometimes we can move to complaint. Maybe there's stuff that we wanted to see Jesus do and isn't happening. Jesus, my relationships are hard. They're not working out. Jesus, my job is too hard. Jesus, there's not enough money in the bank account. Jesus, the kids are challenging. Jesus, you were supposed to make this thing easy. And before we know it, our, we, our earthly hungers start to move us to complaint. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. But the crowds don't just respond with complaint. As he continues to teach about the bread of life, they also move to rejection. We see this in verse 60 and 66. Many of the disciples said, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it as he's teaching about eating my flesh and drinking my blood? In verse 66, at this point, many of the disciples turned away and deserted him. Fascinating point. Jesus would be a horrible megachurch pastor. He goes from over 5,000 people one day to 12. Just saying. But after he teaches them about being the bread of life, right, the crowds leave him. They put up a hand to him and said, Jesus, this teaching is too hard. We want nothing to do with you. And you know what? There are people in this world who outright reject Jesus. They want nothing to do with him. But if we're honest, I think for many of us, sometimes we're not curious, sometimes we're not complaining. There's parts of Jesus that we reject as well. Where Jesus doesn't fit into our mold and we tell him, you know, that part of you, Jesus, I don't really like that. And we might go, Jesus, did, did you really say turn the other cheek? Because that person really hurt me and I want them to pay. Jesus, did you really say sell everything I have and give to the poor? Because I really like my stuff. Jesus, did you really say love my neighbor? Because, man, have you met my neighbor? Jesus, did you really say that I'm the only way to heaven, that you're the only way to heaven? And so we start rejecting Jesus and parts of Jesus. And before we know it, we're like Thomas Jefferson who cuts things out of his Bible because he doesn't like that part of him. But that leads to our last response. And the last response is to follow. In verse 66, it says, At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. And then Jesus turned to the twelve and asked, Are you also going to leave? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? 
You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus asks the question, are you also going to leave me? And Peter replies, Lord, where else would we go? You're the source of eternal life. We, you are the Holy One of God. I believe this is the response that Jesus wants for each and every single one of us. He's saying, in, in me you will hunger no more. In me you will no longer thirst. I can satisfy your deepest hunger. I am the good stuff. And as Jesus says to receive this bread of life, all you need to do is consume him. That is, you need to accept, to believe in his sacrifice for you. But listen, this, this belief, this acceptance, isn't just head knowledge. It's not about knowing some facts about Jesus. It's just not about knowing that he died on a cross. Growing up, I, I grew up Roman Catholic. <clears throat> I went to catechism, did my first communion, went through confirmation. All through my upbringing, I knew about Jesus and what he did. But I never received Jesus and what he did for me. I never let the reality of his sacrifice travel the 12 inches from my head to my heart. I never let who he is take root and consume every part of me. And that's what it means to eat this bread and drink this uh, cup. Jesus becomes not just a part of your life, but all of your life. He brings sustenance. He brings life. Jesus is saying to you this morning, I know you're curious, but in your curiosity, discover that I'm what you need. I know that you're complaining because life is not what you expected, but listen, I've come to bring life that is so much more than you expected. And I know you're tempted to reject me, but I'm pursuing you anyway by going to our cross so that you can have eternal life. As we come to discover more of who he is, our cry this morning, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year needs to become, Jesus, we need you. Where else could I go? Because what we need more than what you can give us is just you. And he will satisfy the deepest hunger in your soul. That's what it means for him to be the bread of life. Will you receive him and consume him today? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to come and to be amongst us, knowing full well who we are, knowing every single part of us, every single part of us that's good and holy and right, and every single part of us that is just broken and difficult, things in us that we just don't want anybody to know. And God, you fully know those things. Jesus, you fully know those things, and yet you still came to this earth and offered us a free gift, something that we could not earn, your love. And because of you demonstrating that love by going to a cross and dying and rising again, we get to spend eternity with you. And so God, we thank you so much for that amazing and wonderful gift. Lord, we confess, I confess, that's so much in this world. I hunger for things that are not of you. I want provision. I want stuff in my stomach. I want political solutions. I want all kinds of different things. I want success. I want popularity. I want people to like me. There's all kinds of desires I have. And none of them satisfy. None of them bring life. They always leave me empty. And so, Lord, help us. Help me to be satisfied in you in just having you in my life. We need you, Jesus. We need every single part of you. We thank you for what you're doing. We thank you for what you've done. 
We give you all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.